The United States are back and Europe stands ready to reconnect with an old and trusted partner to breathe new life in our cherished alliance. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Lee Mumtaz, political correspondent in France, and I'm stepping in for Andrew Gray, who is off this week on a well-deserved break. And as you just heard from Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, this new dawn in America is the moment we've been waiting for so long. Von der Leyen made those remarks in the European Parliament just hours before Joe Biden was sworn in as President of the United States on Wednesday. Biden's inauguration may have taken place in America, but Europe and the world were watching. So here's my message to those beyond our borders. America has been tested and we've come out stronger for it. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again, not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's challenges. We'll bring you reaction from around Europe and debate what major issues Europe and the U.S. will still have to hash out over the coming years. And later in this episode, our own Matt Karnichnik spoke with our special guest, Daniel Benjamin. He's president of the American Academy in Berlin, a foreign policy expert and former U.S. ambassador at large. And he shares his insights into the new Biden administration and what Europe can expect from the new U.S. president and his team. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. Joining me this week is Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And David Hershenhorn, all the way from Brussels. Hi, David. Hi there. So all three of us, I think, have uh, sort of spent all day uh, watching this inauguration. We're recording this on Wednesday evening. What are the first uh, European reactions to what we saw today that sort of spring to your minds? David? Well, the European Commission, uh, I guess it can tweet on its own. The entire commission declared that the United States is back. Whether the United States uh, is great again or not remains to be seen. But clearly there is a lot of relief some jubilation even in EU quarters, uh, some uh, folks happier than others. Also, already some early indications of competition. The Commission President Ursula von der Leyen saying that, in fact, the EU needs to step up uh, its efforts against climate change, that they're really excited about Joe Biden promising to come back into the Paris agreement, into the climate accords, but that this means uh, the EU has to maintain its position as the first mover. And so she's looking forward to that competition going forward. I see you sighing, Matt. What What's going on there? Yeah, no, no. I mean, it just it seems to me this is just the exactly the kind of sounded fury we, we always get from the EU when in reality, the US has made huge gains on climate change, despite not being in the Paris Accord. And the Paris Accord is very symbolic for the Europeans because they like these grand international agreements. Or aka, you know, the multilateral system that was exactly. built after World exactly. War II. They're kind But of attached to at, that. If you look at American CO2 emissions in 2020, they were the lowest since, I think, about 1990. The fact checkers might correct me on that. Is that uh, adjusted for the pandemic shutting the economy? Exactly. It's adjusted time? for the pandemic. Even so, you know, we, we've heard for years throughout the Trump presidency from the Democrats that, well, the fact that the U.S. pulled out wasn't that consequential at the end of the day because it's the states in the United States, particularly California and some other large states that are leading the charge on combating climate change 
and that they've made great strides there, which I think is, is true to a large degree, also because the U.S. is burning much less coal now than it ever has, and particularly less than other parts of the world, not to uh, mention any names, Europe. But I just think, you know, that, that a lot of this is just about symbolism. It's about, you know, the fact that people are happy to see the back of Trump, which is fine. But, you know, if you look at the specifics of what we're talking about, it's not particularly convincing in my view. And I think that the Europeans are going to have a much more difficult time with the Trump, sorry, Freudian slip with the Biden administration than many of them anticipate. Well, has there been, to start with, any German reaction today? Any Anyone sort of speak out? Well, of course. I mean, they're, they're ecstatic because they just hated Trump. And I think the first thing that they're going to be looking for is what Biden does on this tricky issue of North Stream 2, the gas pipeline between Russia and Germany that the Germans have been clinging on to despite objections from basically the rest of Europe, except for Austria and the United States over the past several years. And uh, just yesterday, sanctions against uh, some of the companies involved in this project, uh, American sanctions, went into effect. And I think that they are hoping that Biden will somehow step in here and lift the pressure on that front. I don't think it's going to happen because a lot of people in Congress are determined to put the screws to the Germans over this. The larger point here is that the friction that existed between the Trump administration and Europe, and particularly Germany, the the underlying reasons are not going to go away. He might step in or probably will step in and lift some of the tariffs, the steel and aluminum tariffs, but on some of these other issues, in particular uh, Nord Stream 2, as mentioned, but also China, I think there's going to be a lot of difficulty there. So here's the thing, and I think Paris uh, sort of has the same view that you just formulated, even though they're not saying it uh, quite explicitly. So I was struck today by two things. Early this they morning. They should hire me. They should hire me. Do you want the job? We can put in a good word. Je ne parle pas français. So earlier, that is a disqualifying uh, deer breaker in France, as you well know. So this morning, I was, you know, really struck by 7.30 a.m., the vice president of the French National Assembly, which is kind of the parliament, tweets January 20th, 2021, this too long nightmare is finally over. Good luck, Mr. President Joe Biden. Clearly, he wasn't president yet. It just shows you how traumatic the past four years have been to at least a part of the French political class. That being said, interestingly, Emmanuel Macron tweeted after uh, Joe Biden was sworn in, best wishes on this most significant day for the American people. We are together. We will be stronger to face the challenges of our time stronger to build our future. Welcome back to the Paris Agreement. So immediately going to that climate issue, but also behind the scenes in my conversations with French officials over the past few months, I felt that, yes, they're definitely relieved, but I've also felt that among in some French quarters, they're a bit nervous about a Biden administration because they're nervous about how that is going to kind of stop the momentum that they feel they've built on strategic autonomy, on European strategic autonomy with their European partners. Uh, there's also 
The French foreign minister gave a very blunt interview uh, last Sunday in which he basically said, you know, the trade war is still a huge issue. It's poisoning everything. And they're not really sure what's going to happen with the Biden administration. David? You know, let's remember for some of them, like Macron, you know, this is personal, right? They, they deal with each other on a personal level. And Trump was not particularly good even at doing Trumpian things. You know, he just made their lives miserable so often. You know, I'm thinking about Jens Stoltenberg, the secretary general of NATO, who tried as hard, maybe harder than anyone to work with Trump, who agreed with Trump, of course, on uh, the fact that other allies need to up their defense spending. And that guy is probably the most relieved at, of anyone just to get back to some semblance of normalcy, to be able to have conversations, to know that people who are actually true professional policymakers and public servants like James Mattis could do their jobs, which they couldn't under this erratic president. So now we do see, uh, speaking of the personal uh, level, you know, one thing that strikes me is that, in fact, there's an incredible drama here. Uh, you think of Joe Biden, who ran for president in 1988, how long ago that was, having served as vice president, finally against a lot of odds. A lot of people had written him off now at the center of this inauguration, becoming the president, uh, fulfilling this long dream of his. Sorry, let me, I got to get out my violin here, David. No, no. It's, I mean, it, it, politically, it's, it's, it's super interesting, right? And see, what is he going to do with it now? He has wanted this job for a long time. He's not Obama. He's got more interest in foreign policy than any American president, maybe ever. You look at his advisors who are closest to him. These are the people who are on the foreign policy teams, even though he has so much to focus on domestically. In fact, the people with him the longest, closest to him, his own interests is in foreign policy. It's really interesting because the ECFR, you know, put out this poll in which it showed in like 11 or 12 European countries that, you know, the Europeans sort of have doubts about America's ability to reclaim its leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, I mean, I'm a bit skeptical about that because they haven't been in power yet. And just the tweets of Biden's national security advisor were getting so much attention from policymakers in Europe. I just think that there is so much expectation always of America. And of course, you know, there's going to be Europeans are, are going to be watching what the Biden administration does for sure. And as you said, Matt, earlier today on Twitter, Washington is going to be watching what the Europeans do. I wanted to circle back to a conversation we had last week, Matt, about uh, the race to lead the German Christian Democratic Union. You had made a prediction, which a was wrong. A bold prediction. A bold prediction. Yeah. A wrong prediction. <laughs> uh, do you want to remind us of that and tell us what happened in reality? Yes, yes. I predicted, you know, this was my second prediction. And to quote Trump, I should have stuck with my first prediction. But Don't be a sore loser. My second prediction was that Norbert Röttgen would win the race, the CDU race. and Which uh, was a long shot. You said it. Which, which was a long shot. And, and well, not for the first time. I was wrong. And uh, So what Armin happened? Laschet, Armin Laschet, the minister president, as they call him, of North Rhine-Westphalia, the largest German state by population, he won the race to become the next leader of the CDU, putting him in good position to become the next candidate for chancellor, although that is by no means a sure thing at this point because he has a lot of competition for that race from Bavaria, from the governor of Bavaria, Markus Söder, who's a much more popular figure on a national basis. But the decision on who will 
likely replace Merkel as chancellor is slowly coming to a head in Germany. And let me ask you this question from sort of a foreign point of view, right? A lot of attention has been paid since he was elected head of CDU to uh, his controversial positions on some foreign policy issues. He seems to be uh, more positive toward Putin and Russia. He seems to have uh, tried to defend a Syrian uh, dictator Assad. He seems to have also accused the U.S. at some point of financing ISIS. Uh, is that going to play at all into the contest to become the next chancellor? Well, it depends on how good his spin doctors are. And they could spin it by saying, oh, well, that was many years ago. That was 2014 in in the fog of war in, uh, in Syria. Syria, where, you know, nobody really knew what was going on. He was a little bit confused. He seemed to have gotten some of his facts wrong back then, as I suspect he would be the first to admit now. He is, however, what the Germans call a Russlandversteher, which is a, a term they use for people who are very forgiving of all of the infractions committed by the Russian government. And what that really means is that he is someone like Merkel, to be quite frank, who is always willing to keep the door open to what they call dialogue with Russia. So I think he's going to face a lot of scrutiny for that should he become the candidate for chancellor. But as I say, that's uh, far from a from a sure thing at this point. There are a couple of regional elections coming up in Germany, one in particular in March. And I think his party is going to have to do pretty well there in order for him to be able to make the case that, you know, he's the man who should lead them into battle in, in the fall election. David, is uh, this uh, sort of race in, in Germany getting any kind of attention in Brussels? There, there's no question, right? And, and Brussels, uh, here, here in the land of, of snowflakes, as, uh, as Matt might say, uh, there was a lot of relief uh, because, of course... All you know, the smell they melted would, this week, right? They melted this week. <laughs> they, they would certainly like to see Merkelism uh, continue as long as possible. I mean, the only thing, the only better outcome than uh, this might have been if, if Angela Merkel had decided to, uh, to stay on and said she's, in fact, uh, going to run to succeed herself. So that sense of stability in Germany, obviously the largest, richest, most powerful member of the EU, uh, greeted with some relief in Brussels. But of course, it's it's early. And I think Brussels is, in fact, bracing for another few months of uncertainty as Germany goes through this electoral process, which is hugely important, will influence a lot of what's done uh, in the EU, EU going forward, just as the, the 2022 election in France will. Uh, so you know, some relief, but obviously it's it's far from done. Well, I'm going to wrap it up here. I think we're right about on time and our producer, Christina, is not going to kill me. Thank you, David. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And Matt, let's keep you around so that you can introduce our next guest. Well, so this week we spoke with Daniel Benjamin, who is the president of the American Academy in Berlin, which is an organization that has dedicated itself to the transatlantic relationship. They bring over scholars from the United States who spend a semester in Berlin. And it's an organization that is very plugged into the democratic foreign policy establishment, I would say. And 
Benjamin himself is somebody who is very much a part of that establishment, having served in both the Bill Clinton administration in the 1990s and later as an ambassador during the tenure of Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. He also is somebody who has known Anthony Blinken, the incoming Secretary of State, for about 40 years, which I think gives him interesting insights into that. And so we talked about where the transatlantic relationship might be headed in the coming years. There seems to be a kind of hope that because the atmospherics will be better, because Biden is, as Benjamin said, a kind of, you know, transatlanticist in his bones, that that alone will be enough. I'm not convinced that's the case, but I think it gives us a a good sort of starting point to start considering where the transatlantic relationship is going to go over the next four years. Okay, great. We'll hear that conversation in just a moment after this short message. Hi, this is Freddie from Politico Europe's marketing team. I wanted to make sure you don't miss out on Politico's 22nd EU Studies and Career Fair. It's completely free and taking place virtually on February 4th and 5th. Head to studiesandcareerfair.eu today and discover the leading academic institutions and companies that will be showcasing the academic and professional opportunities in EU affairs. Again, the event is absolutely free, so spread the word or pre-register today to kickstart your EU career. You can find out more and sign up on studiesandcareerfair.eu. We hope you join us on February 4th and 5th. See you soon. I think, you know, with the inauguration happening in the U.S. and all eyes on Biden and the incoming Biden administration, many Europeans are wondering what they can expect from Biden in really the the short term mainly. And if you were sort of sitting in in the State Department uh, right now, what would you be advising the Biden administration to do towards Europe? What signals do you think they should be sending? I think that uh, what I would be saying is probably what they're already thinking. And that is, and it's really the signals that the Biden team have been sending out for a long time, which is that they view the transatlantic relationship as a vital core asset of American influence in the world, and that there are very few things that uh, are top priorities in world affairs that can be done without close cooperation with Europe. Joe Biden is a transatlanticist to his fingertips. Tony Blinken is too. I've known Tony for 40 years, and I know Jake Sullivan is as well. And so they are going to be thinking hard about what they can do to rehabilitate a relationship that has gone through some some very difficult times. And they're going to be doing so mindful of the fact that, you know, Europeans are on the one hand thrilled to see a team that seems to be, you know, on this planet, and that Europeans have to be looking at the new administration and saying, great, but, you know, what happens in two years if uh, Republicans do well in the midterm elections, or what happens if in four years if Trump runs again or some Trump-like person runs again. You know, I think that there's that back... Everyone knows that there's that background concern about American reliability. So if we look back over the past four years and the relations between Europe and, and Germany, 
the the main focus aside from the trade question has has been on on security the security question and uh trump's sort of accusations towards europe that it's it's not uh pulling its own weight in in nato and so forth this is something also that is is not going to go away it predates uh, trump in fact but beyond the security question what what other issues do you think the the US can use really to draw the Europeans in because there is a lot of skepticism there and if you if you follow the debate here in Berlin where we are you see the likely successor of Angela Merkel's Armin Laschet over the weekend making his case to his own party by saying we don't want to become like Washington look at what's going on in Washington you know we've become instead of sort of the example of you know how you should act as a democracy we've become kind of a counter example in the United States so what is sort of the the, the pitch that Washington is going to make here to Europeans well i think there'll be a lot of different pitches on the security issue you know you're right that the issue of uh, the 2% spending on defense is going to still be there. It won't be a subject that the American president or his senior most uh, officials will be haranguing Germany or other Europeans on in public in the kind of divisive way that we have seen. And I think that that's a big step forward. You know, I think one area that you may see an area of common cause would be on democracy policy. The experience of the Trump years, as well as Externally, the kind of wholesale backsliding we have seen, democratic erosion that we have seen over the last decade or so has caused enormous concern in Washington. I think there's a perception now that democracy promotion is a vital government activity in a way that perhaps it hadn't been before. And and democracy promotion has been a big deal for Washington really since uh, the early uh, or mid-Reagan administration. So I think that there there will be an effort to do that. There's been a lot of talk about a summit of democracies. There's also been a lot of good and serious criticism on why that may not be the best place to start, because coming up with the invitation list for such a summit is a foreign policy nightmare of, of the first order. But I do think that there is a powerful sense that this is something that Americans and Europeans need to work on together because this really is the democratic heartland. I recently wrote in your own publication about uh, the need for uh, the U.S. to focus on authoritarianism in Hungary and Poland. And I know that those issues also weigh on the uh, new uh, Biden team. And so I hope that they will address those. I would like to think that Europeans will be pleased if the United States uh, really takes climate change very seriously for uh, in a way that it hasn't before. And certainly this team seems determined to do so. So those are uh, big issues. I think there will also have to be a lot of discussion of how you deal with Russia. And of course, I think Europeans will also be pleased as the new administration tries to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal and to bring a bit more stability to uh, the West's relationship with Iran and to essentially halt the brinksmanship, or worse, uh, that's been going on between the United States and and Iran for the last four years. But do do you think that Europeans are right to be a bit skeptical about Biden and, you know, whether he will have staying power, whether his style of politics, not just he as a person, but whether this shift back to a more traditional American approach 
will have staying power and it would you accept sort of the idea that it's it's might be smart for people to hedge their bets and to prepare for the worst well i think you have to ask the question what is hedging your bets mean in a situation like this it would be really regrettable if anyone stayed on the sideline and didn't support an activist policy on the part of the U.S. as uh, it tries to, you know, re- regain the influence it had before with the idea of affecting positive change on all these big issues that confront the globe, okay? It would be self-defeating if because of concerns about, you know, Biden staying power or what we might call the, the sensible middle staying power, people didn't jump in and do what they do what they can to support that effort. I think it's essential, you know, for good global governance and for dealing with big issues, whether it's nuclear proliferation, terrorism. And I'm, by terrorism, I also include international extreme right terrorism, because we have seen some networks growing up. So I do think that it's in Europe's interest to come out strongly uh, for the new administration. I think that, you know, as you pointed out, there may be other thoughts on trade issues and everyone, as is a great tradition in global politics, will try to have their cake and eat it too. And that's, you know, why we have compromise and negotiations and try to make the case to each other. I think Americans have shown that they, with the last election, that they pretty decisively want to return to sensible government uh, and that they don't want to go down the path of reckless populism. But having said that, we're a deeply divided country, and that's going to be a matter of concern for everyone for a long time to come. I'm afraid that we're almost out of time. I did want to ask you one more question, which is, whether you've been surprised at uh, how quickly the confidence of Europeans in the United States has evaporated over the past years. You've worked on both sides of the Atlantic throughout your career. And if you look at the recent polling, there was a poll out by Gallup that showed that uh, Germans' confidence in the American leadership is at 6%, which is basically the same level as uh, their views of Iran. Organizations like yours sort of exist in a way to, you know, create more understanding between uh, the two sides of the Atlantic and uh, more exchange. You know, Why hasn't there been more of a willingness to give America the benefit of the doubt uh, during the Trump period? I can't blame Europeans for feeling the way they did about uh, the behavior of the Trump administration, although I am, you know, not supposed to be partisan in any way, but the deviation from the norm has been so extraordinary And European views hardly differ from those of tens of millions of Americans. So I'm not surprised by where we've seen the polling numbers. I think you'll see a significant change in the future. But I think that, first of all, the the views of the American government will, I believe, bounce back, maybe not to the levels they were before, but I'm going to hope. But the other thing is, remember, you know, America is not just a government. And this is what's so important for uh, the American Academy in Berlin. We're also here to work to bring Germans in contact with what we consider to be some of the best aspects of American society and American culture, American scholarship, American art. 
And I don't think that any, you know, reflective European is going to say that that's, you know, all Trumpism as well. On the contrary, America remains an incredibly dynamic cultural presence. You know, our work in science, technology, and the arts, all the rest, it's all vitally important. It's all part of the West. And it's important for us to continue to connect with each other and to build these bonds in part to buttress against political turbulence. Ambassador, that's a very good optimistic note to end on. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast or follow us. And leaving us a rating and review will help others to find the show. You can always send us feedback or ideas for guests or topics. The email is podcast at politico.eu. Andrew will be back in the host seat next week. In the meantime, I'm Rim Mumtaz in Paris. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>